Successful Farming and Corteva AgriScience present the first edition of the Farm School Podcast. I'm Lori Boyer. Corteva AgriScience provides cutting-edge solutions for farmers worldwide. Learn more at Corteva.com. At Corteva AgriScience, we believe that when we work together, we grow together. We believe innovative agriculture solutions are found in the lab and in the field, applying real insights from farmers with our global R&D knowledge to create a strong suite of innovations across seed and crop protection. We believe in constantly challenging ourselves on how to bring all of our solutions together, giving farmers the tools to address today's needs and tomorrow's challenges. We believe in what we do because we believe in what farmers do, and together we thrive. Corteva AgriScience, keep growing. Today's topic is how to select better seed varieties. I'm joined by Brian Jorgensen. He is the Chief Agronomy Operations Officer for Jorgensen Land and Cattle based in Ideal, South Dakota. Brian, we start off by getting to know you a little bit more. Tell us about yourself and your background. Well, I'm 58 years old. I have a wife, Brenda, and we have three grown children and uh, nine grandchildren, soon to be 10. And then in September, our 11th grandchild will arrive. So that's kind of the focus of my life right now as grandchildren. I am a partner of a family owned and operated diversified farming business. Uh, I have three partners, my son, Nicholas, my nephew, Cody, and my brother, Greg. And our main focus on this operation is selling black Angus bulls. We are the largest black Angus bull seed stock provider in the world. We market close to 6,000 Angus bulls every year. So that's our main focus. My job is the chief agronomy operations officer. So I am in charge of planning and executing all the crop plans and growing the feed and all the other crops that are needed to uh, fulfill the needs of the animals. I've always been focused on the, on the agronomy side. My passion is soil. I'm an avid soil health advocate. And so not only do we employ soil health in our operations, but we also actively promote it. So yeah, I mean, that that in a very quick synopsis is my life. Well, Brian, thank you. We appreciate getting to know you a little bit more as we move along in our conversation, again, with the topic being how to select better seed varieties. My first question to you, what are the key factors to consider when selecting corn hybrids and soybean varieties? We look at not only corn and soybean hybrids. We also look at winter wheat, oats, spring wheat, and we propagate those cereal grains uh, for seed production here, for certified seed production. And most of the genetics that we uh, use come from South Dakota State University, where they develop and propagate varieties for production. And so we're always trying a little bit of something new every year in our system, a new variety. It takes about 10 years to develop a variety of wheat. And so it's a pipeline, if you will. So every year we're trying a little bit of something new. And do you have suggestions on picking varieties based on trials? I look at them introspectively. I mean, I, I, I look at them in terms of how does one variety compare to another in that environment. But I always have to temper it by saying whoever did that 
test. How did they, what kind of soils did they have? What kind of fertility program do they have? What kind of climate conditions did they have? There's so many variables that can change the outcomes of those, of those yield trials. So I, when I look at somebody else's yield trial, I always have to say, how far away from home is it? Do I know the people that did it? Are there representative hybrids from different companies or is it just one company? So there's a lot of things that I look at and I don't make a decision on buying a hybrid based on yield trials from other areas. I look at that as a way of measuring one hybrid against another in that environment. So I will take that data and then if I have any of those particular hybrids that might be in somebody else's plots and I apply those in my environment under my conditions, um, I do that judiciously and look at those, look at those hybrids, how they perform in our environment under our management conditions closely before I make a, a, a large decision, uh, decision about uh, buying a particular hybrid. What are other key factors then to consider when selecting those hybrids? I know you mentioned kind of making sure that you are selecting for your personal scenario, but what other things should we be considering, Brian? Well, certainly in this part of the world, drought stress is probably the one thing that we can't control. We cannot control how much rain we get, and we are in a semi-arid environment. So whatever variety that we pick, and it doesn't matter the crop, has to be able to be flexible enough to maintain its productive capacity when it's not raining. It has to be able to take drought stress. We don't have disease stress as much. We don't have a lot of insect stress, but drought stress and heat stress can probably be our biggest uh, risk. So whatever hybrids we look at or varieties look we look at, we tend to really focus in on its capacity to handle drought stress. Brian, you alluded to this, but what factors should be considered about a specific growing environment when making these choices? Yeah, so we grow a lot of different crops. And so we're not just corn, we're not just soybean, we're not just wheat. We grow a lot of different crops in rotation. And so the hybrids have to be able to adapt to those different scenarios, different residues that they're going to be planted into. And also we're no-till. So 100% no-till, have been for 35 years. So the hybrids that we pick have to be able to adapt to those high residue situations and not, you know, that's probably one of the biggest factors is they have to be able to handle the, the residue that we work with. Is there research that is done or how do you get information and resources to know whether or not your crop can tolerate residue? So most of the corn hybrid corn companies have a pretty in-depth database of those kinds of characteristics. Soybeans kind of do. The cereal grains, they don't. I mean, that's, I mean, they, it, it's more trial and error, if you will. But most of the time, cereal grains are, are pretty adaptable just because they're a cool season type grass. So they adapt pretty well to most any scenario. Corn hybrids in particular, you know, you can find those kinds of characteristics within the data that they provide you, its ability to come up in cold soils, for example, cold germ. Those are kind of things we, we look a little bit at, but generally speaking, we live in an arid environment, so we're not dealing with cold, mucky soils here. So 
But I look at those kinds of bits of information and then we try a hybrid on a small scale on our operation. And usually, and I'm probably answering another question here, but when we plant corn in particular, we have a planter that has a central, central fill bins, two bins. So we always plant two different hybrids in that planter. So one half of the planter will be X, the other half of the planter will be Y. And they're going to be of similar maturities, uh, maybe a day or two apart at most, but in relative maturity. But it gives us an opportunity on a broad scale to see how multiple hybrids compare to each other in the same scenario. And it, it also, uh, from an agronomic perspective, it broadens our pollination window a little bit. And so when we get stressed during pollination, we might stretch out the time frame that the, the two different hybrids might be pollinating over a longer period of time. So they can kind of share, if you will, share pollen with, with each other. For us, it seems like it's worked very well to do that. Brian, what factors do you consider about your unique management practices? And kind of a twofold question here. And coming back to where you started talking about cover crops. So no-till and cover crops, do they make a difference? No-till and cover crops are the, the only reason that we can grow corn in this part of the world. I mean, with, with conventional tillage, we would set the system up to fail um, because we would be taking a lot of the moisture that we work so hard to capture here. We would evaporate that out. Um, the cover crops add to the soil dimension uh, by a, adding a living root for a much longer period of time, and it increases the soil health. And so the two are hand in hand. And if you understand, and I'm sure we'll get to it, but when you talk about the five principles of soil health, those are both in there. And so, yes, they make a huge difference. If, if I didn't no-till and if I didn't have cover crops, my success rate on growing corn and soybeans here would be very minimal. Do you consider goals for your operation? For example, if you want to reduce herbicide or pesticide applications, how would that impact selection decisions? Everything's kind of focused around soil health, okay? So I want to make sure that my management practices fall in line with the soil health principles. And also, I want, from an economic standpoint, trying to minimize the amount of inputs I have to put into that crop in order for return on my investment. I don't focus primarily on yield potential, I focus more on return on investment, okay? So I'm not driven by selecting a hybrid that's going to be, you know, the bend buster, if you will. I'm going to focus on the hybrids that will perform in an environment that takes less nutrient, can handle the residues, and, and handle my management system. So I, I'm not driven by this corn will out yield the other one by 15 bushel. I'm not, that doesn't, that doesn't drive me. I'm sure that's actually a hard question to answer because as you have stated already, a lot of what we're talking about today depends on each operation's unique situation. Now, to, to further answer that question, I do have a goal of reducing the amount of applied nutrient, for example, by at least 40 to 50%. In other words, if the university tells me that if I want to grow 120 bushel corn, I'm going to need 1.6 pounds of nitrogen per bushel. And in reality, I can do it on one half of that. And so 
that's to me is a, and a goal that I try and achieve every year of applying far less nutrient to a system to achieve the yield goals that I, that I set forth. Brian, how do you balance production costs with the yield potential? Well, it's hard because we live in a, an unsure environment. Water is, water is our biggest limiting factor. If we can get rainfall here at critical periods of the year, it's very easy to achieve my goals. And last year in particular was an instance where the crop looked amazing all the way up until first part of August and the, the rainfall just shut off. And literally we did not get any precipitation until December. So for five and a half months, the crop lived, you know, basically until it went to harvest, it lived on what it captured in the soil up until the first part of August. And obviously it didn't meet the yield goals that we wanted to set forth. We still made money on it, but it didn't achieve the yield production that, that we would have hoped. Remember, we're producing a lot of feed. So about 70% of what we grow on our, on our acres is converted to animal feed. And so that gives me the ability to grow a lot of different crops, but it also means that we're not directly selling a commodity to a, another party. It's staying internal. So that helps me from a cash flow standpoint a little bit that we don't have to buy a lot of feed. But when we fall short of our production goals, then we have to go out in the marketplace and find enough feed to replace the deficit. So it's not like a cash corn and bean farm at all. How do you evaluate the new varieties that you bring to your farm and keep track of that information? So like the cereal grains, for example, it's, it's a 10-year it's a process to develop new varieties. But since I'm growing for certified seed production, I'm bringing into our system every, every year a new or fresh variety. So that gives me the opportunity to see how it performs before it gets produced on a large scale. I, I might buy enough foundation seed, for example, to grow about 20 acres of a crop, and that'll give me an opportunity to see it. And I've already seen how it performs in the SDSU production trials because it's 10 years in the making. Corn and soybeans, again, a lot of the hybrids and varieties that I use, I try on a small scale first a little bit. We also, like I said, we plant corn, two different varieties at the same time. So it gives us an opportunity to compare or benchmark two varieties at a time over a larger area. Soybeans, um, it's, it's pretty much they change from year to year as well. So I kind of rely more on the, the data from the, the companies to help me make those decisions. But there's so many environmental things that will affect soybean production, you know, rainfall at the wrong time or heat stress at the wrong time. Any of those things can really alter the course of, of yield potential on a soybean. At Corteva AgriScience, we believe that when we work together, we grow together. We believe innovative agriculture solutions are found in the lab and in the field, applying real insights from farmers with our global R&D knowledge to create a strong suite of innovations across seed and crop protection. 
We believe in constantly challenging ourselves on how to bring all of our solutions together, giving farmers the tools to address today's needs and tomorrow's challenges. We believe in what we do because we believe in what farmers do, and together we thrive. Corteva AgriScience, keep growing. What have been the results that you have seen for the selection practices that you are using? Well, sometimes we hit, sometimes we hit a home run and sometimes we don't. That's the trial and error process. Sometimes there's expectations of a given variety from a seed salesman that say this, this variety is going to knock it out of the ballpark based on what we've seen it do in other, other parts of the state. And when it gets here, it falls on its face. And contrary to that, I mean, I've seen varieties that they don't put a lot of expectations on and it comes here and performs very well. So again, it, it's, it's a trial and error process. So that makes sense. Thanks, Brian. What are some key takeaways that you would like to share with other farmers? Well, I guess, you know, do, do some research, obviously looking, I would encourage them to look at yield data, but look at yield data that's close to home with similar soil types as yours similar management practices, and then try things on a small scale. Uh, you don't have to go out and buy 150 acres worth of something, you know. And a lot of times the, the seed corn and soybean companies will give you a bag or two to try. And so capitalize on that, you know, see what they'll give you to just try it and, and see how it performs. Because ma your management practices are going to dictate the success and failure rate of those hybrids. I don't care how good they may be or how poor they may be, how they're, how they're growing in your scenario is going to dictate that. Brian, you have mentioned here using resources and data and information from the seed companies as well as the trial information that you have collected from your own trials on your farm. What other resources are out there to help farmers make educated decisions when it comes to choosing these seed varieties? Because we know hybrid varieties are not cheap. Right. Yeah. You're making a pretty big investment, you know, 250 to $300 for a bag of corn. Uh, I know when I buy foundation winter wheat seed, it's $25 a bushel. So, I mean, it's, you're putting a lot of faith in the data that they're providing you, but understand that that, again, those data sets are generated from different management practices. So you have to learn to balance what you look at and try it on your, on your, under your management. So it's, it's, it's just a process that you have to go through. Brian, as we've been talking here today, some of the things that are coming to my mind are how important it is that farmers and ranchers do their due diligence and their research when selecting seed varieties and hybrids, scouting fields, keeping track of data, looking at images and trying to stay on top of things. So what are some ways that farmers can indeed stay on top of things, continue to educate themselves, and still actually farm? Right. Well, the first thing is stay away from the coffee shop because you're going to get nothing but lies there. That's If your neighbor, Joe Blow Farmer, down the road says, I, you know, I got 160 bushel corn, don't believe that. So I would use the tools that most farming operations already have in their disposal. And that's the technology that we have in the cabs of the tractors and the combines and being able to track what they're planting and what they're applying out there and then be able to use the technology and the yield monitor of the combine to decipher what works and what doesn't. And that's the beauty of that. And it's not, it's a time consuming process. Trust me, I've done it for 30 some years, but 
it's worth the effort of being able to see how yield is impacted by different varieties or different management practices. So, but don't, don't go to the coffee shop and expect to get the truth out of your neighbors about what hybrids work and what don't. So be very careful with that. I love that answer. That's a great answer. And then you just kind of walked right into my next question. You said you've been doing this for 30 years. You've been using your time to do these things. Do you have any personal time management tips on how to work that into your day? Well, um, I'm a little unusual in that my role here is non-operational. So I don't sit in a combine seat anymore. I don't sit in the planter seat, but I get the opportunity on a much larger scale to be able to look at the data that is provided me through those operations. So we've been collecting spatial data since 2000. And so being able to having the ability to sort through all that is a challenge, but it's worth the effort. So I would say that, you know, since we've had the ability, we adapted and adopted those kinds of technologies as soon as they came out. So we're usually one of the first in the area to adopt a new type of technology, whether it's GPS or whatever, but we're usually one of the first to adopt it because they're tools. They're tools to help us make these decisions. Any other things that are helpful for you when you are trying to decide whether or not to use technology on your farm? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things coming out. You know, there's been a a real evolution in the corn planter, for example. Corn planter used to be a pretty simple tool, pretty simple device, and it's become probably one of the most complex as of late with all the technology that's been applied to it. So you have the ability for each row of that planter to have its own control system and be able to change and adapt population, for example, to different things. Uh, We've added now seed tubes that allow us to drive at 10 miles an hour, which there's a lot of technology out there, but sometimes it's a little over, we get a little overzealous. And so it gets too complicated. And then we soon discover that the technologies are great when they work, but when they don't work, they become a burden of time and and you really start losing the efficiency of the equipment when you have to battle through trying to make things work when in fact a simpler design would still make get the job done so we don't have all those fancy gadgets on our planners and we have some of them but we don't have all of them and you can spend a lot of money i mean you can dole out a ton of money to to adopt all these technologies but when your planter is not in motion because of some device that's not working or not communicating and it won't work, that's costly. I mean, you know, a 24-row planter has the ability to plant 40 to 60 acres an hour. And if you're spending half a day trying to figure out how to get a sensor to work, then what's the point? Brian, you mentioned at the beginning of our show today that you own a significant amount of cattle. Brian, I wanted to ask, is there anything in regard to the cattle side of the operation that has to do with seed varieties, seed selection, maybe for pastures or anything like that? No, the pastures are native, so we don't cultivate or, if you will, we don't change that. But we do a lot of grazing on our crop production acres, and it's it's one of the five pillars of soil health or principles of soil health is getting livestock back on the farm ground. And so that's where the, you know, the cover crop, the selection of cover crops, for example, the blends that we put together are designed around being able to graze cattle at a particular time of the year. We select certain corn hybrids for silage production, certain sorghum 
varieties for food plots, for pheasant hunting. So there's a lot of management things that come into play in, in deciding what type and variety of, of crops that we, that we select. Do any of your neighbors or any of your contacts ever ask you to come and consult for them or with them? Yeah, mainly on the cover crop side. You know, I get a lot of questions about what kind of blend should I use in this particular scenario or time of the year. So I get a lot of cover crop questions. I don't get a lot of questions or ask for a lot of input. I do, I guess, get a, a, quite a bit of questioning on winter wheat seed, oats seed, and spring wheat. They always want to know if they're not in the production system like we are in terms of growing seed. They want to know what how this variety that's coming down the line, how it's going to perform. For example, I when I try a new wheat variety, only seed growers are going to get that variety for the first year. Okay. And so I will have a year or two of production history before that variety is available to the general public. Let's spend some time now talking about soil health, Brian. I know it's an important part of what you do on your farming operation and is definitely something that will be bigger and bigger as we head into the future. There's a lot of discussions on soil health and sustainability. So let's talk more about what you do and some of the things that you've learned. Overwhelmingly, we as farmers need to focus on maintaining the integrity of our soils. If we lose, if we lose the integrity of our soils, then we become a poor country and we have to become reliant on someone else to grow our food. And it's happened historically for many millennia that cultures that were once rich were rich because they had a strong agricultural base. And over time, through poor practices, they lost their ability to save their soils. Their soils went away. They turned themselves into deserts. And, and so I'm very focused on what we do to make sure that that doesn't happen in our operation. But unfortunately, if you look at agriculture today as a whole, we're driven by yield, we're driven by farm policy, we're driven by demands such as ethanol, all kinds of things that dictate how we grow crops. But we're not focused on saving the soil or building the soil. And I think there needs to be a you're seeing a trend now. People are becoming more and more aware of, of the soil systems and what drives them. There's a very minimal understanding in agriculture of how the soil system actually works. But we've been taught to throw a lot of input to it to grow yield. And there's a, there's a consequence to that. So we look at it from a different perspective. And so there's a push. It's a growing evolution of people that understand how the soil system works. And that's, that's gratifying to know, but it has to happen quicker in my mind. I understand how cover crops attribute to soil health, but the new varieties that we've been talking about, the hybrid varieties, are they also a contributor to developing and maintaining soil health? Uh, to some extent, you know, there's a push, for example, in uh, corn to grow its own nitrogen or provide its own nitrogen. And that's, you know, that's a nitrogen fixing bacteria, basically. So, I mean, it's no different than a soybean, but so in that instance, yes. But the other thing is root development. You know, obviously if a plant is bred to generate more roots, to build more root structure down, they're going to capture more nutrient, more moisture. So, yeah, I mean, there's certain things that they're looking at, but a lot of it's still, you know, it's still driven by insect control or pest control, herbicide resistance, those kinds of things. So 
you don't really see anybody talking about, well, this, this hybrid is for soil health. You don't really see that. To put it into simple terms, when I think of soil health and how I understand it is it is what goes on beneath the soil, all the living things that are going on and all the happenings under the soil. And I had once asked someone how you measure soil health and they told me, go get your shovel, turn up some soil. And if it has earthworms, you know, you have healthy soil. Soil health is something you can't really define. You just know it exists. It's kind of like, how do you, how do you define a beautiful woman? I mean, that's all in the eyes of the beholder. And I, you know, soil health exists when the plants are happy, the wildlife there is happy. You can look at the soil and it looks healthy and smells healthy. And there's earthworms and there's biology and everything's green and lush and gorgeous. And the cattle are fat and happy. That to me is how you define it. And I'm not watching my soils blow off in the ditch. I'm not watching it erode when we get heavy rains. And I'm seeing a resilience in those soils when times get tough, when we have extensive periods of drought, we see a resilience in that system. And that's how I define what soil health is. That is a great definition. Thank you for that. And then one other question on that. Do you use like the precision ag, the imagery to also help you determine if you have good soil health or not? You know, I haven't. I've looked into that a little bit. I mean, you can look at vegetative imagery and kind of get an idea. But if you practice soil health practices for as long as we have, you know, we've been no-tilling since the mid-1980s. And we've been employing minimal applications of, of herbicides and fertilizers for about that long as well. You start to see a uniformity develop in these in these fields. Rather, regardless of soil type, you'll start seeing a lot more uniformity just because things are more in balance. So if you go look at a native pasture in our part of the world, native grasslands that have never been tilled or whatever for thousands and thousands of years, you see that kind of uniformity as well, where they're managed properly. So yeah, but the end it's a great tool, you know, using satellite imagery or drone imagery, whatever. It's a great tool. A big thank you to Brian Jorgensen, Chief Agronomy Operations Officer for Jorgensen Land and Cattle based in Ideal, South Dakota, for being a guest on today's Farm School podcast. Today's show has been brought to you by Corteva AgriScience, providing cutting edge solutions for farmers worldwide. Learn more at Corteva.com. I'm Lori Boyer for Successful Farming.